Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 52, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the conclusion. So today we are going to complete our study of the book of Revelation. And from the beginning, uh, my purpose was not to make this a sensational and dramatic survey about the end times, nor was it to create new doctrines and, and traditions. It was to study the book of Revelation for what it is, God's Word, Holy Scripture. And to take it in the plainest sense possible, while understanding that much symbolism combined with deep mystery is incorporated. And admittedly, at times it has been challenging to sort out which is which. And so in the end, you will each need to decide which side of the evidence seems to fall heaviest. Now, especially starting with chapter 22, verse 6, a sense of urgency is introduced into this book's call to holiness. It is made by repeating the same essential message over and over. And that urgency revolves around the timing and certainty of Yeshua making his long-awaited return. Verse 6 speaks of it in terms of the things that must happen soon. Verse 7 says, look, I'm coming very soon. Verse 10 says that the fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies is near. Verse 12 says, pay attention, says Yeshua, I am coming soon. And verse 20 says, yes, I'm coming soon. You get the idea? Why this repetitious warning of imminence to end this book because at the moment hear this, please because at the moment of Christ's return, Revelation tells us that the spiritual condition and therefore the eternal future of each and every human being that is living or has ever lived will be forever frozen This means that when that trumpet sounds and Christ descends back to earth, however it is that it happens, it doesn't signal some final opportunity to make a decision or to rethink a wrong one. It means the time for decision has come and gone. Permanently. This is the context in which we must understand the final few precious words of the Bible. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and we're going to start reading at verse 6. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that will be page 1555. 1555. 
Then he said to me, These words are true and trustworthy. Adonai, God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must happen soon. Look, I'm coming very soon. Blessed is the person who obeys the words of the prophecy written in this book. Then I, Yuchnan, John, the one hearing and seeing these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers. The prophets and the people who obey the words in this book worship God. And then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy in this book because the time of their fulfillment is near. Whoever keeps acting wickedly, let him go on acting wickedly. Whoever's filthy, let him go on being made filthy. Also, whoever is righteous, let him go on doing what is righteous. And whoever is holy, let him go on being made holy. Now pay attention, says Yeshua. I am coming soon. And my rewards are with me to give to each person according to what he has done. I am the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to eat from the tree of life and go through the gates into the city. Outside are the homosexuals, those involved with the occult and with drugs, the sexually immoral, murderers, idol worshippers, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the Messianic communities. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life free of charge. I warn everyone hearing the words of the prophecy of this book that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. If anyone takes anything away from the words in this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city as described in this book. The one who is testifying to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Yeshua. May the grace of the Lord Yeshua be with all. Now verse 7, in addition to building up this theme of urgency also reminds us of something that we were told at the very beginning of John's Apocalypse. In Revelation 1.3 we read, Blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided, (laughs) big word, provided they obey the things written in it for the times near. So verse 7 says, Now, in chapter 22, look, I'm coming very soon. Blessed is the person who obeys the words of the prophecy written in this book. So the beginning and the ending of Revelation are tied together in a neat bundle with these two verses behaving as bookends. 
let's not bypass this definition of just who gets the blessing for reading John's book because often in Christian circles the message is that a very good incentive for reading Revelation as difficult as a read as it can be is because all who do read it will receive a blessing from God. However, the all-important qualifier is left out. And the qualifier is that in order to receive that divine blessing, reading the words or listening to them simply isn't enough. One must obey them. We must embrace this book as a treasure and as a command. God does something very unusual in it. He gifts us with a glimpse of not only the historical future, but also of the eternal future after the end of history. He sets out the requirements for us to participate in the millennial kingdom and after that the new earth and the new universe, but also the things that disqualify us Yet some of those disqualifiers are no longer politically or socially popular to utter. And so societies and even churches have sought often to find ways to dilute them or to dismiss them altogether as primitive, irrelevant, even hateful. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more shortly. Now I remind you that by this point in chapter 22, the series of visions has ended. And we're reading about things that John received either audibly or by inspiration. So John says that after seeing and hearing, he was so overcome with awe that he fell down at the feet of the angel who delivered at least some of these messages and worshipped him. The angel, of course, immediately rebuked him, reminding John that he too was no more than a fellow servant. God deserves all the glory. God is the only one to be worshipped. It is noteworthy that the angel says that among the fellow servants are the prophets and the people, and once again, who obey the words of this book. He is speaking of the Old Testament prophets from whom John drew so much of his wording and the structure of his book. Those who were shown or or told much of what John was shown, only they received a similar message centuries earlier. And the people who obey the words are too only servants of God. So when it comes to worship, there is a universal two-class system in place. The one to be worshipped, God, versus everybody and everything else as worshippers. In verse 10, John is instructed to do something that has a pretty familiar ring to it. However, the instruction essentially commands the opposite 
of what an earlier prophet was told to do in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. So while Daniel was told to keep the visions of the future that were given to him a secret, John was told to publish those that he received. Why could John reveal what Daniel had to conceal? The second half of Daniel 12.4 tells us what the criteria is for revealing what at first God wanted held back. Now we've discussed on numerous occasions that not only Revelation but also the words of the Old Testament prophets in past times were often not understood or they were outright misunderstood until with the passage of time enough history unfolded so that the circumstances surrounding these prophesied events became imaginable or even apparent. John had substantially more knowledge and understanding than Daniel because John lived seven centuries after Daniel. For instance, while Daniel, while for Daniel salvation was little more than the Jewish people being rescued from their Babylonian captivity and returning in freedom to their homeland, that was just a shadow of what was coming. John came to understand salvation on an entirely different level. No longer was salvation only a liberation from an earthly oppressor. It had become a spiritual reality of far more impact because it crosses all cultural boundaries and transcends eras. Even the one who performed that saving act was known to John. Daniel, well, he was given a brief insight into several distant, even end times events, but he could make little sense of them because they were utterly bizarre to his mind. In fact, they confused and upset him so terribly that we read in Daniel 8.27, I, Daniel, grew weak. I was ill for some days. Then I got up and took care of the king's affairs, but I was appalled at the vision. I still couldn't understand it. John did understand some of his visions. Now many of them were really just a replay of Daniel's. But not all of them. He received a better understanding of the sequence of future events and to an extent when they would occur. John had the benefit of Daniel's and Ezekiel's and Isaiah's and all the other Old Testament prophets' prophecies. Still, most of these visions were to take place so far from John's time, as we're now privileged to know, that there was no way he could possibly understand the features and the shapes and the objects 
and the human institutions that he was being shown. But rather than being confused to the point of illness, as with Daniel, John was awed to the point of even wrongly worshipping the messenger of the oracles, an angel. Now verse 11, well that's a modern theologian's nightmare. It says something about God that many just don't want to admit or to entertain. It is that our loving and long-suffering Lord can also be severe. Essentially, the words seem to say, I hope you're looking at those verses, you are destined to remain however you are. Not a lot of hope in that, is there? Let's tackle this. Let's see if we can perhaps understand the point that's being made here. Now, first of all, I see this as an offshoot of the story of the divine hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. See, Christians are generally comfortable with the idea that God knows all things about us, including the hidden. Therefore, he knows in advance what we're going to choose, what we're going to do in any given situation. And yet, Christians at times are troubled by the knowledge that because of God's omniscience, He will at times set His hand against someone such that they seem to lose the ability to make a different choice than they've already made. That is, God blocks their ability to reconsider and repent. We seem to read something quite similar in the words of Revelation 22.11. However, second, I think the statement coincides with the series of ominous warnings that Yeshua is coming quickly and soon. Many scholars think that at least in some instances a better sense of the word that describes Christ's return is to take quickly as meaning suddenly. That is, it's less an issue of where along some timeline the return finally occurs than it is that when it finally happens it's just going to be instantaneous. Suddenly. Now, I suspect that both ideas come into play in this final chapter of Revelation. That Messiah's return is imminent and it will occur instantly when the time comes. Therefore, as these two troubling statements say, as we discussed earlier, it is important that a person not delay in making their decision for Christ before he returns because at the moment of it, that person's conditions and futures are set in stone before he or she has a chance to change their mind. There is yet another side, a third side to these startling pronouncements. They are kind of a rewording of something that Daniel said. Daniel in 12.10 
said, Many will purify, cleanse, and refine themselves, but the wicked will keep on acting wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. But those with discernment, they will understand. See, this aspect aspect states what the wicked do versus what the righteous do. And since the wicked will go on behaving wickedly, they will not understand either the goodness of the Lord or the meaning of the end times events as they begin to happen. But the righteous will further purify and cleanse and refine themselves and as a result receive discernment such that they do understand the goodness of the Lord and also the meaning of the events of the end times when they begin to unfold. In the end, I think these three aspects of the meaning of those words of verse 11 work together to make a simple point about the nature of humanity. It is that over time and eventually character tends to become fixed and unchangeable and consequently determines each person's destiny. This is more proverb than law. Because while not true 100% of the time, it is true far more than it is not. So verse 11 is a warning to non-believers and an exhortation to believers. Now verse 12 is not the theologian's nightmare, as is verse 11, but it is troubling for nearly all of evangelical Christianity and for several other branches of the church. It it cannot be more plainly said that what we do during our lives on earth will have a serious impact on our eternal lives. What we do. Yeshua says he is coming soon and along, along with him will come the various rewards that will be meted out based entirely upon the works and deeds each person has done. Certainly this is not speaking about a works-based salvation. But it is speaking about a works-based rewards system for the saved. Can you see the difference? Now is as good a time as any to once again close the book of Revelation and recite those critical words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in this regard. In Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, these commands, and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven.
Notice who is speaking in Revelation 22.12. He directly identifies himself as Yeshua. Who is speaking in Matthew 5.17-19? Once again, it is Yeshua. So it should come as no surprise that we see this principle that our obedience, our works based on God's laws during our lives will be the determining factor for our place and our reward in the kingdom of heaven even though our basic membership in the kingdom is determined solely on our sincere trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Yeshua then goes on to say something startling, if not confusing. He says, I am the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. See, these are terms that up to now in the Bible have been reserved for that aspect of God that we call the Father. So how can we have Yeshua also claiming them? Now the tendency in Christianity has been to create a a divisive polarity in which we ascribe all authority and power to Christ and relegate the Father to obscurity. Or the other way around. (laughs) I find neither approach to accurately reflect the scriptures in their totality even though we might be able to isolate sections of the Bible laying aside their larger context as an attempt to prove that such a polarity exists. I confess I am at a loss for words to properly express what the meaning of the statement in verse 13 is communicating except to say that in some sense I think we ought to have expected it. I say this because somehow as believers We are to try to comprehend the biblical dynamic that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God so utterly inseparable was God's unity and yet at some point some kind of reorientation occurred in which the word aspect of God or perhaps only some portion of the word aspect of God came to earth, assumed flesh, was born of a woman, lived a normal life and was hung on a cross dying a gruesome death. Then he was resurrected by the Father. The purpose of his advent and his actions was to effect the atonement necessary for God to grant a full pardon to all those who trusted in what he had done. All throughout Revelation, we clearly are witness to some sort of division of authority and labor in which God and the Lamb are spoken of distinctively, separately. They're even set in a hierarchy with God the Father as the ultimate and God the Son, the Lamb, as subservient. Now upon the recreation that begets a a new earth and a new universe, that reorientation seems to have ended. And God 
has become reunified in the most complete way such that that division of authority and labor and hierarchy seems to have dissolved back into exactly the way it was at the beginning. I am painfully aware, by the way, of the inadequacy of my words. But I just have no other explanation to offer you. Although I am also comforted (laughs) that not too long from now it's not going to matter. Because it's all going to become clear as our eternity with this same majestic and mysterious God begins. Now in some way, rather in the same way that there is controversy within Christianity over Christ handing out rewards based on deeds and works, so verse 14 creates another one and explaining that how blessed are those who wash their robes. That is, commentators and theologians debate over whether there was a manuscript error regarding this phrase because to many of them the statement smacks of a believer essentially saving him or herself by washing their own robe. John is, in my opinion, continuing tying up the bundle, so to speak, by repeating some of the most salient points made earlier and connecting them to others. The matter of washing of robes as a metaphor for holiness was spoken about much earlier in Revelation, in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, one of the elders asked me, these people dressed in white robes, who are they and where are they from? Sir, I answered, you know. And then he told me, these are the people who have come out of the great persecution. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. The Bible is positively filled with metaphors and expressions regularly used in that age. And in that age, garments being made white was a common metaphor for ritual purity and for holiness. In fact, this statement in Revelation 7 is an intentional irony. Think about this. How can a robe be made white by being soaked in blood, Christ's blood? Wouldn't it come out red? So we have to step back and understand that this was simply a common manner of speaking and that the idea is that those who are holy and righteous have the right to enter the gates of the New Jerusalem and eat from the tree of life which itself is symbolic of and and it bestows eternal life. What are we getting with verse 15? Another list is introduced. Now this is the list of outsiders. This list is similar in purpose as the one that was presented back in chapter 21, verse 8. Now although on the surface, this is a list of those excluded from the city of New Jerusalem, it is meant to communicate those who are excluded from the new earth entirely. 
Otherwise, it's nonsensical. Since the new earth is an eternally created place of purest holiness, with sin and evil having been completely eradicated. And the first category is, according to the complete Jewish Bible, homosexuals. Now in fact, in Greek, the word is kuon, and it means dogs. I cannot say with absolute certainty that in this context, dogs means homosexuals. In ancient Jewish society, Jewish society even in ancient Hebrew times, dogs were held in contempt as being filthy and creatures nearly without worth. They were not pets. And in Jewish ritual, they were unclean. Dogs were viewed as shameless, without any redeeming virtues. So as you can imagine, the term dog was a nasty epithet hurled towards an enemy or a despised person for any number of reasons. It indeed was the customary term used throughout the Bible for a male prostitute. Thus when speaking of dogs figuratively, it was in most cases, though admittedly not all, speaking of gay men which is the likely case here, given the context, as a very specific behavioral lifestyle that was excluded from eternal life with God. The next excluded behavior were sorcerers, who invariably used magical concoctions. We call those drugs today as part and parcel of their sorcery. And after that are what the complete Jewish Bible calls the sexually immoral. Now the King James Version says it is the whoremonger. And the New American Standard says it means the unchaste. And there are other versions that say fornicators. Now we covered this in an earlier lesson, but briefly, the Greek word that these different translations are trying to interpret is pornos. And the Greek lexicons agree that in biblical usage this word specifically means male prostitutes who sell their services to other males. That's what this word meant. So in, since this indeed is referring to male homosexuals, then one has to wonder if the term dogs is doing the same. The bottom line is this. Whether it is the term dogs or it is this Greek term pornos, one or the other, maybe both, certainly means to communicate homosexual lifestyles. The next excluded category is murderers. Now this is a good time to remind you that each of these behavioral categories does not mean that if at some time in your life you committed one or another of these behaviors that you will not inherit eternal life. Rather, we are to understand these as behaviors that have grown to the level 
of chosen identities and lifestyles. Paul said it in a very similar way. Meant it in a very similar way. So yes, a person who has murdered can be redeemed and have eternal life. But a person who murders for the sheer pleasure of it, bases their lifestyle upon it, is lost forever. After murder comes idol worshippers, essentially meaning people who worship gods other than the God of the Bible. This can include atheists, who essentially worship themselves as supreme beings, therefore putting themselves in the place of God. And then finally, deceivers. Now verse 16 says that it was Yeshua who sent a messenger, an angel, to enact these visions and inspirations in John, which are meant for the messianic communities, believers, or in more typical modern language, for the churches. I want to go back for a moment to the opening words of Revelation. Recall this now. Revelation 1.1 This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. And he communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yochanan. So we must understand that this message was contrived within the being of God the Father who sent God the Son as his agent to deliver it, who then chose to deliver God's message by means of an angel. And we must also understand that Yeshua is only repeating in verse in, in Revelation twenty two fifteen what was said back in Revelation one one. So it all comes together. When he says, when Yeshua says he is the root and the offspring of David, he means this. As the root of David, Yeshua is identifying himself with Israel. And as the offspring of David, he is identifying himself with the messianic lineage promised in the prophets. And while he doesn't directly quote any particular Old Testament passage, he clearly draws upon Moses and Isaiah. Listen to Numbers 24.17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. A star will step forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel to crush the corners of Moab and to destroy all descendants of Sheth. Isaiah 11.1 But a branch will emerge from the trunk from the uh, trunk of Ishai, Jesse. A shoot will grow from his roots. Isaiah 11.10 And on that day, the root of Jesse, which stands as a banner for the peoples, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will seek him out. And the place where he rests will be glorious. I mean, how appropriate it is that as we are just a handful of words from the end of the biblical canon, 
that Yeshua continues to offer his invitation to the unsaved in verse 17. Now interestingly, Yeshua invokes the two agents that he uses to pass along his invitation to join his flock. The Spirit and the Bride. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Bride is his followers. It's you. It's me. It's all who have turned to Christ for salvation. Of course, in Revelation, the bride is spoken of as those who are part of the new Jerusalem. But in modern language, this is just speaking of believers. We believers, with the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, we are responsible to tell the whole world the truth, even though most don't want to hear it. Our job is just to obey. And in this case, obedience is to speak the truth of the gospel to the unsaved. Our job is not to persuade or to save. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And what good news it is that we bring. Salvation means coming just as you are. It means that the cost for your forgiveness has been... It's been paid for by another. Let anyone who is thirsty take a drink of the water of the fruit of the tree of life, the river of life, completely free of charge. No preconditions. There has never been another message there has never been another offer such as this one in history and there never will be but there's a consequence for refusing the offer or just as bad perverting the message this is what verses 18 and 19 are about The words of John's book are never to be added to or God himself is going to take action against the perpetrator by visiting all the plagues the revelation threatens upon him. God's message is complete. It's perfect as it stands. No amount of good intent to add to it will be tolerated. You know, it's interesting to me that that same warning was given as regards the books of Moses, the Torah, and Deuteronomy 13.1. Everything I'm commanding you, you are to take care to do. Do not add to it. Do not subtract from it. A further warning against tampering with his word. And verse 19 promises that should anyone treat God's word and message carelessly, 
to have the arrogance to want to make changes to its meaning or its intent to its content then God will remove what would have otherwise been theirs the tree of life and the right to live in the new Jerusalem folks these two verses are aimed directly at our Christian and messianic institutions this is a warning to believers not to the unsaved it's a warning about losing our salvation you know since the first century there have been honest and sincere efforts by apostles, congregation leaders, scholars, commentators to delve into God's word and extract from it proper understanding. But there have also been insincere and dishonest attempts to try to make God's word conform to man-made agendas and traditions. It is not the former, but rather the latter that this warning from Yeshua is aimed. Look, we are human. I am human. Error is inevitable. And thankfully, it's forgivable. But deciding that our human intellect outweighs God's perfection, that's not forgivable. And the cost of such deceit and folly is everything that matters. And finally, to end this apocalypse, it's reinforced as to why reading this book is so important. Yeshua who certifies that this entire message is from him. He who has previously said we can count on these words as trustworthy and true says he is coming soon. So be awake, be aware, and most importantly, be ready. Amen. Come Lord Yeshua.